Hello everybody, welcome to episode 4 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Tom Major and with me is my co-host Ben Marshall and uh, today we're going to be discussing day geckos. Yeah, a voice known as Felsuma. Quite quite exciting little lizards. There's loads of them, isn't there? There's like 40 or 50. I couldn't get a good estimate on how many species of Felsuma there actually are. Over 40, possibly 46 I think. Okay. But, but they're pretty much mostly sort of fluorescent green, just crazy looking they're called day geckos aren't they because they're active in the day it's actually that simple yeah they've got big round pupils so they can see and not get blinded i mean that's a good rule of thumb if you're looking at geckos if they've got elliptical pupils nighttime elliptical slit pupils or like uh crepuscular you know active evening morning and then round pupils for your day geckos like these guys eyes like a cat nocturnal eyes like a man diurnal yeah, it'd be better if that rhymed, but yeah. Yeah, it nearly rhymed. I feel like if we try again, we could get it. But yeah, I that's actually, I hadn't really thought about it, but that's one of the reasons they have that hilariously adorable face is because they have the round Those pupil. big pupils, yeah, yeah, they are incredibly cute. Yeah, it gives uh, them like a really different like, sort of appearance, quite distinct from other, other geckos, I think. Yeah. But yeah, they're sort of um, diurnal, as we said, they're arboreal, and uh, they're found on the African mainland, and on islands throughout the Western Indian Ocean, like sort of like uh, Mauritius, Reunion, um, Madagascar. That's another big island. There's plenty on Madagascar, and in fact, the largest species is found on Madagascar. We're going to talk about oh, that, he'll that come up later species. on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, they're mostly insectivorous. They eat insects, but um, as we'll find out, they also like to eat pollen, nectar. They've definitely got a sweet tooth. Mm, definitely, yeah. Kind of adds to their appeal as well, doesn't it? You can empathise with an animal that likes <laughs> delicious sweet treats. Oh, yeah, I think... Oh, who doesn't? Who doesn't? Yeah. Um, they can also eat sort of uh, pollen, nectar, and... Apparently there's a type of bug... I don't know anything about bugs. Basically, like, possibly even thousands of species of bug have passed me by in a fell swoop <laughs> here. But there's a type of bug called plant hoppers... Um, which is like, I don't know, a class or an order or a family, some huge thing, something that's bigger than family, of bugs. Um, but they produce like a sweet, syrupy something, and the geckos like to eat them. That's neat. That's very neat. Yeah. They're, they're making use of all sorts of sugary treats. I it like that. makes you wonder why a, an animal would evolve to taste delicious, but it must have another purpose. I don't know what it is. No, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Um... Yeah, so uh, what do you think? Are you ready to crack onto paper one? Yeah, I did just want to point people towards, we said over 40 species. Yeah. Um, if you want to know the ins and outs of those 40 species, there is a monstrous paper by uh, Rocher, Rosler, Gearing, Glor, Posada, Harris and Ventsis in 2010 called The Phylogenetic Systematics of Dago's Genus Phallosuma Based on Molecular and Morphological Data. And that was in Zootaxa. And that is an absolute behemoth of a paper. It's 28 pages long. And it breaks down everything you'd want to know between the species. There are diagrams of all different uh, morphological aspects across all of them. There's different life history traits across all of them. There's the baseline molecular data for proper family tree. It's a ridiculous paper. It's so bulky and impressive. I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing because... That would have taken me a full day, but that's where to go if you want details on these guys. I genuinely think there's a job for you out there 
just as a hype man for phylogenetics <laughs> papers, which are like really dry and boring. I want to go read it. No, this one's great. I mean, just just track it down just for the figures alone. I mean, some of them are, are wonderful. Cool. Well, there you go. So if you've got an interest in uh, phylogenetics specifically, you must be an alien, but go and, go and, go and check <laughs> yeah, out his paper. If you're really brave, yeah. Yeah, if you're feeling feeling cocky after reading the light-hearted ones we chose to read. <laughs> yeah, if you've been jonesing for some phylogenetics, <laughs> that's where to go. <laughs> so with that, should we move on to the uh, first one, the first paper we read? Yeah, let's get right into it. Cool. Um, <clears throat> this one's entitled... Habitat selection of the Mauritian lowland forest day gecko at multiple spatial scales, a baseline for translocation. Uh, this was published in Global Ecology and Conservation in 2014, and it's by Buckland, Cole, Godzul, Rodriguez, Perez, Gallagher, Henshaw, and Harris. And this paper pertains to Felsuma Gwimbawi. That is a hard one. Gwimbawi. Gwimbawi. These are geckos from Mauritius. Unsurprisingly. Yeah. Well, with a name like Mauritian Lowland Forest Day Gecko. <laughs> it's, it's a very descriptive common name, to yeah. be fair. Where <laughs> they're found, where they live, and when they're active. Yeah. Job done. Yeah, literally. You don't really need any more information. It's a waste of time publishing anything on their ecology or anything <laughs> like that. But um, yeah, they're from Mauritius, which is 700 miles east of Madagascar. Um, they're really boldly coloured, actually, particularly males. They have, they've got like almost fluorescent green, not literally fluorescent green, but like a lime green. As close as you can get naturally. Almost. Yeah. yeah. Lime green body with um, turquoisey shoulders, especially on the males. And the males have really bold red blotches on the, along their backs, across their shoulders. The females are similarly patterned, but they're a little bit more subtle. But Well, that's something that's quite consistent across Felsuma is that sexual dichromatism. Nice. Different colour, um, whether females are just duller, but essentially the same patterns. Yeah, dichromatism. Mm. We had a snake that was dichromatic. Well, exactly, yeah. If you were to see a female without seeing a male, you'd probably just be like, wow, check out that brightly coloured gecko. And then you'd see a male. <laughs> and <laughs> and see your male. mind would be blown. Yeah. Yeah. Goodness. Before we start this paper, I was thinking we should define some of the terms from the title. So, habitat selection is the process of an animal choosing a habitat in which to live. Obviously, habitat selection is a cornerstone of ecological research because ecology is the interaction of plants, animals, and the environment. And so them choosing where they live has a big impact on their role in on the earth, essentially. Yes. Um, well, and it's very important when it comes to conservation because you've got to know what they like. Yeah, well said, exactly. The other one we should define is multiple spatial scales, again, coming up in a previous episode, but these guys point at a Thomas and Taylor 1990 paper, The Study Designs and Tests for Comparing Resource Use and Availability in the Journal of Wildlife Management. And Thomas and Taylor give a quite nice breakdown in that of, you've got a population level, which is where these animals are choosing to live on your sort of landscape or study scales, wide out as you can. You're looking at sort of land use, that sort of thing. And then you go in a level, the next level down would be home range. So where an individual is moving within just their, their lifetime, their area that they're using and what they're choosing to use within that. And then you go down another level and you're into microhabitat scale where you're looking at things, the real small details of forest cover, uh, 
a lot of times it's focused around a particular feature, isn't it, microhabitat scale? So it might be a rock pile would be yes. a microhabitat feature. Yes. And they tend to use the different microhabitat features for different aspects of their lives. So you've exactly. got like, like shelter and food source and yeah. all the tiny little things which are going to be on a day-to-day choice mm-hmm. basis. Yeah, cool. So that's um, <clears throat> they're the three scales they used in this paper. Mm. And they're kind of the three scales that at least I would expect to see. I think it's pretty standard, yeah. I mean, that paper sort of talking about it was 1990. I think it's pretty accepted that that's at least what you want to do to get a really good picture of how an animal's using a landscape. Yeah. So uh, Mauritius, I was reading, is actually kind of a bad place to be a reptile. Yeah. Mm. So they used to have 17 endemic species of reptile on Mauritius. Mm. Guess how many there are now. Five. <laughs> you read it. No, I didn't actually. Really? That yeah, was a complete really? guess. Yeah. Oh, fair go, man. Yeah, no, there's five. Um, I might have is... absorbed it, you know, subconsciously, but yeah. I didn't have that It was in the down. recesses. Yeah, maybe. There's only five left on Mauritius of 17. Um, the rest are extinct, and Fulsuma Gwimbawi is actually the most threatened of the remaining five. Yes. So I did do a little bit of digging on what is partly causing that level of vulnerability and one of the things they're pointing towards is as we mentioned the giant day gecko from madagascar which is felsuma grandi grandis grandis i reckon yeah it's grand i couldn't remember it was grandi or grandis but grandis is yeah just Um, means big big gecko (laughs) yeah no wonder this guy is coming and is competing for space and resources and potentially there's direct predation they are overlapping where they live with our other species here, our Mauritian lowland gecko. So there is quite a lot of potential for direct competition and problems. So Felsima grandis is the Madagascar giant day gecko. This is, yeah. the, this is the gecko causing all the problems. Mm. And it is sad because not only are they sort of muscling in on the territory, eating the same food and inhabiting the same sort of areas in terms of resources... The final kick in the teeth is they actually eat them as well, as you said. Yeah, it's a, well, you know, it's suggested this. I'm not sure how much has been confirmed, but it is a multifaceted attack on these yeah. poor Mauritian geckos. The the paper that's examined how you know the real shift and the potential impacts of the giant geckos by the same guys. Or some of the same guys as the paper we're talking about now. It's Buckland et al. 2014 Ecological Effects of the Invasive Giant Madagascan Day Gecko on Endemic Mauritian Geckos Applications for Binomial Mixture and Species Distribution Models. Kind of discount the end of that title, as that's the sort of methodological details published in Plus One. But that's really just looking at distribution and how these geckos are and may be interacting in the future. It's quite a complicated thing to study, really. It is. You've got no idea how this giant day gecko is really going to live in a completely new. It's place. always going to be hard to pick apart exactly what's going on. Yeah. And um, Buckland and Co. also did another paper in 2014 entitled "High Risk of Losing Genetic Diversity in an Endemic Mauritian Gecko." Mm, so you've got that double whammy of. Uh... Yeah, and they found that um, not only is this brute from Madagascar causing <laughs> trouble. But um, also, there's only 30 populations left that they could find. Or maybe, it might be that there's actually more, but they could find, th- they studied 30. Yeah. 
12 of them are within natural endemic forest and 18 are in exotic forest. So less than half the populations are actually existing in the place they evolved to be. Yes. Um, and those populations are all small as well. Um, they Buckland et al. estimated the effective population size, which is the number of individuals who are actually breeding in those populations, to be between 44 and 167 for each of those 30 populations, which is pretty small. It doesn't seem like much, but then, you know, Mauritius not massive. So populations anyway are probably going to be quite limited for these species. They might be sort of that's true. used to that. I mean, that's not a good picture by any means. Well, but... in the paper, they, they sort of said that based on the um, genetic variation within the populations, they previously were all pretty much well connected. Oh, so and it is a fragmentation yeah, problem. So okay. it is actually pretty much doom and gloom. They thought maybe... 50 years and they could start going those individual populations could start going extinct because of the lack of genetic inflow and outflow so basically they just inbreed themselves into oblivion yeah did you actually see why the giant day gecko was introduced to, to Russia's? was it a deliberate introduction <laughs> well maybe deliberate um it's not entirely clear but it looks like initially it was imported for the pet trade yeah and you know to breed and for that stuff but now they're being actively moved around the island because they eat other geckos. And the, what they mentioned in the paper was people were getting these giant geckos to get rid of the other geckos in their houses that were considered noisy and messy. <laughs> <laughs> now, if that what? doesn't sound like, you know, the woman who swallowed a spider sort of situation, you've now got a giant Madagascan day gecko in your house. <laughs> I don't understand the logic there. I was a little bit sort of suspect that that's really happening, but that's the one of the one of the reasons they were saying these guys are expanding. That's utterly bizarre. Like that makes me feel a bit weak. <laughs> oh, I've got all these geckos in my house. Bring in more geckos. <laughs> <laughs> Bring in the geckos. We're going to solve this gecko problem once and for all. <laughs> Seemed very oh, odd. God. Very. Odd. It's just ridiculous. Um, where were we before that bombshell? Some oh yeah. So um, well, we were just talking about the status of the uh, Mauritian Lowland gecko, weren't we? Yeah, they're in trouble. Basically, um, they're in real trouble. And hence, doing this study yes. to try and find a potential solution. Yes. Um, I have to say, this paper, I really enjoyed it. The yeah. the layout of it was really, really cool. It was nice to follow through. Everything was nice and coherent. They yeah. didn't throw thousands of acronyms at you. No. And the discussion was so succinct. It was like a paragraph of like briefly outlining what they found, then a little bit more detail into how their results matter, which is obviously what a discussion mm. is supposed to be. But then the bulk of it was actually the implications for the conservation of the species. It felt very practical and very applied, yeah. which is quite nice to read about. Yeah, I, I really did like it. Yeah, so before we dig into the discussion, we'll just go over the sort of basics of what they did. Um, basically setting up areas in various parts of the island, big 16 by 16 metre uh, quadrats or crits, whatever you want to call them, and walked through them every week for a year <laughs> uh, you know gecko's active period and they recorded a whole range of habitat factors and where the geckos were what the geckos were doing geckos sex and size and they could individually id them with the patterns and stuff which is always nice they didn't have cool. to be marked so they had some sort of idea of home range for these geckos which they also ended up calculating for was it 28 
they had enough data on to calculate that for. So they had this wonderful picture of the habitats. So they had tree diversity, tree height, tree width, uh, density of cavities in trees for shelter and things like that. All these wonderful microhabitat bits of data and how the geckos were using it. And they could use that to get an idea of what factors the geckos preferred and were making use of. Because mm-hmm. that's the whole point of this paper, isn't it? To work out what these animals like in the hopes that they can then, later on down the line, find them some places to live or do some mixing yes. with populations to try and get them a bit more yeah. viable. So in the course of this study of their um, various geckos that you described there... <laughs> of them walking out week in, week out, looking for geckos... Yeah, they were... Fair play to them. They did it for, like, was it seven years? It was a while. It was yeah. a good few years, yeah. Yeah, commitment is really cool. Well, without that sort of long or longer-term study, you can't get, or you can't be confident in what you've seen being representative. And, it, you know, you can see half your geckos in a certain tree just by fluke. But the longer you do it, the more certain you can be in your observations. Yeah, I mean, you just you can't pick apart what's coincidence and what's not. You can't pick apart... If you just did it for a year, you might get an impression that every single gecko hangs out in this one particular tree for the whole of June, but it might just be that that tree had a great year for fruit or whatever, yes, and exactly. they were just there with their weird little can... faces licking the fruit all, <laughs> all summer long. Yeah, you can take into account things like seasonality and stuff. You can start teasing out other patterns. Yeah. So what they did find out was that, unsurprisingly, males have larger home ranges and occupy a, a bigger area than the females. Mm. Um, they also over... quite, con- quite considerably, too. It was over double. It's over double? Mm. Fair. 77 metres squared compared to 26. Oh, that is a big difference, actually. Big difference, yeah. That's 77 metres squared for a little gecko is a lot, isn't it? You almost feel like they just live in one tree all their lives. Yeah. But they're obviously... They're on the move. Yeah, they're going they around. They've got places to be. <laughs> yeah. So the males had larger home ranges than the females. They also overlap their home range with several females. So probably due to an effort to enhance their reproductive success but the authors couldn't say that for sure but that's kind of what it seems like female home ranges were clearly related to food and shelter it's unclear why but females also overlapped with other females Mm. that might just be a case of they're more willing to share resources with each other not as territorial or something yeah it could just be that lack of territoriality yeah yeah um Tree diversity was the most important habitat feature for geckos at all three of the spatial scales we described earlier on. Yes. It had the most influence over their habitat choice within home range. So it was important for landscape scale, home range scale and microhabitat scale. But in terms of their home range, they had to have tree diversity. Um, The authors put forward two reasons for this, which they're not certain of either, but they kind of postulated these two. One was that the higher plant diversity meant more insect abundance and diversity. So there was a multitude of different insects for the for the geckos to eat um, as different plants or habitats for different bugs. Yes, yeah. to me that makes a lot of sense. It feels like that greater diversity, the less degraded forest is going to be just a healthier ecosystem with more opportunities and it's going to be more in line with what they evolved to deal with. So naturally there might be a bit more... A bit more yeah. flexibility. If one thing goes bad, 
there's lots of there might be another tree, yeah there's another tree in your home range which fruits at the same time of year that you can take advantage of makes a lot of sense yeah my guavas have gone bad don't worry there's mangoes <laughs> exactly yeah so the other reason they suggested for these um, geckos relying so heavily on tree diversity was that uh, increased diversity would give them more options for branches to perch on and bask so if there's more different kinds of trees they can perch in more places obviously they need to warm up and get basking to digest their food and be active yeah this is this one i was sort of it makes sense in your mind you can see how it would break things up but at the same time i feel like if you i'm not entirely sure how it's tied to diversity because you could get just one type of tree which creates the perfect balance of dark and shade you know i haven't been to these forests i don't know maybe the places that were very uh monoculture single species were monoculture by one species that was really crap. So mm. it feels like the sort of thing that could be explained or investigated better with methods specifically looking at areas of thermoregulation and temperature using something that really digs into canopy density and all that sort of stuff. But that's a, I mean, that's not what this study was doing. That's a whole other level of technology and would take a whole other bit of methodology. But it would be cool to find out. Yeah, it would be. It would be really interesting. It's always good to take these things to the next level. So we had tree diversity is important, as mm. we discussed. Um, also tree height, because taller trees allow for better basking sites. That one, to me, makes a lot more sense. Um, yes. That was another another theory anyway. That was what Yeah, I mean, because they are forest dwelling, therefore that's the way to get to your basking sites is up. Mm. I but, suppose if there weren't the tall trees, then you well, wouldn't exactly, need Exactly. If, if you were talking about an open ground species, taller trees would decrease basking sites because it would shade rocks and things. So it's very much species-specific, that one. Yeah, yeah. But th- again, that was just what they thought. So at the population level, so on a bigger scale, wider trunk diameter of trees and density of cavities were important for adult sighting. So the bigger, the, the wider the trees um, and the more cavities the trees had, they saw more adults. Mm. That's probably due to... Cavities providing shelter from birds, they offer them nesting sites, while wider trees, again, help them regulation, supposedly. Um, these metrics, though, didn't affect the sightings of juveniles, and the no. authors, I quite like that, the authors were like, well, the reason you don't see more juveniles in the better habitat is because the adults chase them away. They're getting bullied out of the best spots, yeah. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It does. Smaller geckos going to get pushed out of the prime trees, especially with a species that is displaying territorial behavior yeah they're not not going to give any quarter to a little gecko no moving in on its turf no but like the overarching theme is that in order for their habitat to be most suitable they need big trees and tree diversity and lots of places to nest and hide i mean it's exactly as you'd expect but it's good that they've like empirically proven it yes and they know which ones to prioritize when looking for a new habitat to move them to in the future if they do need to because it could have been it could have been something really random that they actually required that no one was thinking of. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the last thing you want to do is say, okay, we're going to move these geckos to a new bit of habitat that looks the same. And it turns out, yeah, it looks the same, but it's missing all the critical aspects. Because you could have something that was all quite densely forested, but they're trees that have no cavities, mm. or they're, I don't know, something like eucalyptus with quite small trunks or something, and, it, and no cavities, and the geckos would be exposed to predation and have no places to lay their eggs or who knows you've got to do the groundwork to be confident 
because you can't you're risking these animals lives moving them you can't do that on a whim yeah very true yeah it's a lot it's a big responsibility translocation this moving of animals to try and populate new places i do actually have they they brought up uh Pisidium catilianum 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 what are you trying to say? Basidium catalianum, the yeah. strawberry guava. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is another invasive species, which is actually invasive in Madagascar as well. And they pointed the finger at that, saying this would be a bad place to move geckos, but it's low cavity, low uh, trunk width and stuff like that, and it really doesn't work for them. Interesting thing with the strawberry guava, however, is this is when you have to do it species by species. One thing it does work for a couple of species on Madagascar, there are the Madagascan fruit bats love the stuff and they've been seen eating strawberry guava no problem they take advantage of agricultural plants like sisal and all sorts of things like that eating the pollen and making use of these sisal sisal is like a succulent agave like plant that you turn into materials and things like that it's everywhere in Madagascar it's just there's so much of it and the fruit bats come in and get pollen and stuff, and they might even play a role in pollinating it. They're having, you know, they love it so much. And the other one that makes use of strawberry guava are the uh, eastern lesser bamboo lemurs, which. So oh, we're still on Madagascar with these lemurs. We are, we are, but they're bamboo lemurs. You think, oh yeah, they're specialised to bamboo. Maybe not, because they love the guava when they can get it, because <laughs> they can digest it easier. So they're uh-huh. taking advantage of this invasive species that to some species, like in Mauritius, it's quite bad for. Little bamboo lemurs, they're loving it. They're chowing down. <laughs> Stop me if I'm getting ahead of myself. Get WWF on the phone. I know how to save the pandas. <laughs> Give them strawberry guava. <laughs> Give them guava. Um, I believe the, another common name for strawberry guava is Chinese guava or something like that so i believe it's already in oh China. So it's already there i think so it's probably I... just one of the many many delicious things pandas could eat if they weren't so headstrong and well they have a little nibble and like oh it's a bit too good for me <laughs> leave it out they're masochists aren't they pandas? <laughs> 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 masochists <laughs> but yeah those two those uh grassy 2006 variability in habitat diet and social structure of hapla grisus in Ranamathana National Park, Madagascar, American Journal of Physical Anthropology. I know I'm talking about mammals here, which is kind of a faux pas, but I thought they were a good example of exactly the same species doing good somewhere else. Yeah, and no. It's just down the road, so it's good. It's good, isn't it, to remember? Like, yeah, every, everything in its place, especially when it comes to invasive species, because there can always be these unintended side effects. I don't think anybody bringing in sisal for oh yeah, it'll provide a good source of food for these. <laughs> Fruit bats? No, no way. Sorry, flying foxes. I think I said fruit bats before. Even still, though, there is still probably a significant amount less insect diversity on those than there would be on a native. Oh, I'm sure there are. Oh, yeah, but for that specific species, Mm -hmm. they're doing alright. They're still they're still getting a win for the bats, which is something. Yeah, that was a long and racy 2007. An exotic plantation crop as a keystone resource. An endemic megacoroptodon, Carapus rufus in Madagascar, Journal of Tropical Ecology. I mean, there are a couple of cool little case studies. I just wanted to not have the strawberry guava completely thrown under the bus for its completely useless and possibly detrimental effect on the marine lowland <laughs> go- gecko. Fascinating insight into the life of the strawberry guava. Well, you know, one man's uh, food source is another 
I feel like there's a, there's, there's a good duality saying in there about strawberry guava. I can't find it. <laughs> the conclusions of this paper with uh, Felsumer Gwimbawi, the authors did recommend translocation as a future conservation tool. Mm. Um, they did, however, say that with a few... Caveats. Um, caveats, yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, it would need to be to new home ranges rather than... Yes, outside their historic range. It's not like repopulating an area. It's going to somewhere that they've never been before. Yeah. And the population, is, uh, the species has never existed before. No. So the, the reason for that is that the native areas are so badly degraded and isolated that there'd never be enough genetic flow. They could start a new population, but it would just be another small, isolated, doomed population, essentially. I mean, it's really dire that, that their entire natural range is degraded to the point of... Even if you throw, a, I mean that's that's really bad. Even if you give more individuals, say it's still so bad. It's not been a one-off event where they've lost numbers. It is constant and progressive and hasn't been fixed. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mauritius has not got a lot of its wild areas left. Yeah. Um, they also recommend increasing tree diversity within existing sites because as we were discussing mm. the tree diversity is really important to these geckos yeah if you can just boost the the carrying capacity the habitat's ability to hold more geckos push more resources in these areas you might be able to force a greater diversity uh, sorry a greater density of geckos you sort of run into problems if the territorial aspects of their behavior get in the way there might be just a de facto density of geckos and they can't live more closely because of the com- intense competition. Yeah, I think what they were suggesting was to kind of, in the areas where their existing endemic forest still exists, on the borders there's a lot of this strawberry guava, and they were basically thinking <laughs> of expanding those areas out through destroying the strawberry guava, mm. um, through cutting down the strawberry guava and planting fruit trees back again. So basically boosting the level of habitat that they have available in space yes. instead of just quality. Yeah, yeah. Which makes a lot more sense. Might not work. I mean, it's worth a try, it's, isn't it? it? The thing is It's a that, lot of effort. It's, exactly. Yeah. It's easy to talk about. It's very difficult to implement. Yeah. And mm. one thing that tends to be the case with invasive plant species, once they're invasive, they're pretty damn good at continuing to be invasive. I'm not entirely sure if strawberry guava is one of those ones classified as invasive, but I think it's been moved around for actual consumption and other reasons, so it's had a lot of human help, and maybe its natural tendency to spread is not as bad as its current distribution suggests. Hmm. Yeah, who knows? We need... I'm not sure. Well, I didn't read that much about strawberry yeah. guava. I, read I thought you were going to... I'm afraid I don't have those, <laughs> those answers. Fair but nevertheless, this uh, this paper is a really good good grounding on the ecological requirements mm. of a species, the Mauritian lowland day gecko. And it's something that will be applicable, the methodology and the rationale behind it, to other reptile species around the world. I mean, it is very Mauritian-focused, but it is a case study, really. And there's no reason you couldn't do that anywhere else with any other reptile species just tweaking what you're measuring in terms of microhabitat perhaps yeah to make it more relevant to your study species mm. so there we go cool so um yeah should we should we move on to paper two 
Yeah, let's let's talk more <laughs> more about Dacre. Consumer <laughs> coming in. Go on, you introduce this one. So this is by uh, Taylor and Gardner in 2014. Nectar feeding by the Daygecko Felsuma mutabilis on the mangrove tree Sonatia alba in southwestern Madagascar. And that was published in Herpetology Notes. So Felsuma mutabilis is a cool little gecko. Mm. The common name is the thick-tailed Daygecko. But I googled it and I actually think that's a bit harsh. They're pretty well proportioned in my eyes. <laughs> well, well, the Latin is um, just means change, doesn't it? Mutabilis. So it's changeable. Oh, that's cool. Like like mutate, I suppose, is, is the root of that. That is cool. But yeah, fat tail, it's not exactly... Uh, it doesn't conjure the image of an attractive looking gecko. No, but they are, they do look cool. They've got like they a are, yeah. stripy head, like a spotty sort of granite style pattern on the back. Um, and their tail is like plain blue, pretty much. Mm. So it's a sort of a steely grey blue, but it's a blue nonetheless. Yeah, the blue tail is basically... Hey predator, go for my tail, as opposed to any other part of my body, because these guys, like a lot of lizards, can drop their tails and regrow it. Job done. Safe and sound. Not great for the next time their tail gets grabbed, but the first time they're good. <laughs> yeah, no, it is tail autotomy, that's what they call it, isn't it? Mm. And um, tail autotomy, sorry, not autotomy, autotomy. Autotomy. Yeah, and it's um, it's a really cool little adaptation, mm. that really common in geckos. Seems to happen quite a lot for Felsuma, certainly in mm. uh, I forget which paper mentioned it, but one of one of the ones we're talking about today said there was upwards of seventy percent of the geckos they saw tended to have tails that looked like they'd been regrown. So they're definitely making use of it. It's really interesting. Whether actually. they're a little bit overzealous with losing it, who knows? But <laughs> roll the dice, I suppose. Yeah, it's that choice between having no tail and getting eaten by a bird, I'd choose the the no tail. It's a time. small price to pay, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Um, but yeah, so they got the blue tail, and um, the rest of the body is kind of greyish with uh, the the brown markings. Not as stunning as the Mauritian lowland day gecko, but still quite cool looking. Yeah, I mean they're still they're still attractive little geckos. They're not ugly by any means. No, but yeah, so this paper they were looking at just some small observation really about um, yeah. the fact that these geckos, as the as the title suggests, they eat nectar. Mm, and survive in this rather hostile environment for a lizard, anyway. I thought that because I in the paper they mentioned that they're actually used to act sort of semi-arid environments. Well, that's where I've I've seen these are one of the few geckos I've seen in the wild. I've seen these guys in the arid south of Madagascar, and that is dry as a bone where I saw them, and yet they're living in full-blown mangrove forest. Yeah, well, I was thinking about this because although mangrove forest is obviously wet. There's not an abundance of fresh water. No, but there is that humidity, mm. which yeah. mm, it depends where they're getting their water from. I, I, I don't know. But these guys were spotted 120 metres from permanent dry land. Yeah. So they're not just, you know, around the mangrove. They're properly in the mangrove. And to think of a lizard living its potentially its whole life above semi-permanent usually flooded ground is really I mean we were talking about how big their home range is or another species is home ranges are maximum of 100 metres squared they're probably not going to reach that permanent dry land perhaps no they're, they're fully arboreal little geckos yeah living above the sea which is really weird yeah 
So yeah, they were eating the nectar from the from the actual mangrove tree itself. So not only is the mangrove tree their habitat in terms of actually it's their only kind of land almost. Well, obviously it's not land, like you say, they're arboreal. Yes. But also that's their, uh, one of their food sources and they're eating the nectar from the flowers. They The authors did say that they're not actually um, pollinating these flowers because the the plants are actually um, they're actually night blooming, so their their mm-hmm. flowers bloom at night and they're pollinated by bats. So it's kind of unclear whether or not the geckos are just selfishly devouring the nectar and not doing the tree any favors. Might be uh, pollinated by the Madagascan uh, flying fox. So I imagine they're doing it on the sides, or they might be doing it on the. Mangroves. I yeah. don't know that for sure, but I don't see why not. They're yeah. probably the same type. I think they're quite widely distributed, those guys. Cool. But yeah, someone needs to look into the, the relationship between this plant and this animal, which no one has yet. Yeah, it might just be, you know, the gecko's turned up and it's just got lucky. Free food. Mangroves don't seem to be doing anything to prevent them. And they don't seem to be benefiting if they're not pollinating. So it's not this uh, symbiotic relationship as in they're both benefiting, like... Uh... Well, you've got three types of symbiosis. You've got... Um... Well, this would just be parasitism, wouldn't it? Yeah. You've got three types of symbiosis. You've got parasitism, as you mentioned, which is where uh, one species nourishes itself to the disadvantage of the other one. So, gecko versus mangrove tree in this case. Quite possibly, yeah. Then you've got mutualism, which is where both species get a benefit, which is you're like um, your blenny and your crab. You know, the one where the blenny takes care of the hole and the crab gives the blenny some of the scraps. Yes. That was on a, I think that was on a BBC documentary, that one. And then you've got uh, commensalism, which is where one species kind of gets food or shelter from the other one, but it's not harming it. It's just kind of getting on with it. Um, hmm, so maybe that's more what we're talking about here. If, if the gecko isn't actively harming the yeah. mangrove tree and it's producing excess pollen and nectar if that's not decreasing the chances of it being pollinated by something else yeah you're probably it right might still be fine yeah unless there's some kind of unforeseen horrible uh vandalism the gecko is doing to the flower it in just the course crashes of the flower <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just ruined, but... i'm gonna take your nectar and ruin your chances yeah that. but that doesn't make a lot of sense so it's probably uh commensalism yes yeah that's not really playing the long game you start wiping out or harming your food source so something else I learned in the course of reading this paper mm. was that um, when you have CF just CF dot in between the genus and species name in this paper the, the example I'm using is Felsuma CF dubia they're just talking about a different species not the one that's the topic of the paper they just say something along the lines of there's four other arboreal lizards found in mangroves one of which is Felsuma CF dubia the CF actually means confer, mm. and it's like, they're not sure, they think it looks like that, and they're going for that, but there's a lot of uncertainty around the name. Okay. So when that pops up now, I'm going to know, which is quite cool. I'm sorry, Felsu- Felsuma dubia, as in the dubious Degeco. Yeah, I suppose it is, yeah. So not only is it unconfirmed it might be dubia, the, even the species name is dubious. <laughs> What are the chances? The double, the double whammy of unknowns. Yeah, the most mysterious gecko going. It's just kind of generic, I guess. What, are they, what does a Felsuma dubia look like? It's just kind of brown. Oh, fair. <laughs> or they're, they're browner compared to what you think. Oh, yeah, gorgeous day gecko with distinct markings. Yeah. Not that they're, you know, they're not ugly. Is that a photo of one there, yeah? Mm. Mm. Sort of like brown with a so. slightly pale belly. 
Yeah, you really, you wouldn't. If I saw that photo, I wouldn't think that's false humor at all. I'd think that's some like Southeast Asian or even African house gecko or something. Yeah, I think the eyes the uh, the kicker really. Yeah, yeah, and it does up. have a slight blueness around it. When, but... Once you got close, it'd be obvious. Yeah. So um, they were observed eating nectar in pretty much the f- the ocean. <laughs> it was the the long and short of that paper, I think. Yeah, just a nice little note saying, hey, look, look at these geckos being quite adaptable and taking advantage of a resource that people previously hadn't seen them do in quite an interesting area. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, from one from one natural history note about Felsumer to another. Mm. Um, this and ne- something a bit more flexible, too. Another Felsumer in a very foreign environment. Yeah, that's very that much is certainly true. This one's by Gardner and Jasper. It was published in 2015. Diet of the endemic Malagasy day gecko, Felsuma modesta, Leogaster, in an urban environment. Um, this one was again published in Herpetology Notes, which um, we found out earlier, didn't we, is actually the note section of Amphibia reptilia. They mm. kind of have a the European herpetological society have an arm which is like online only notes and it's called herpetology notes and open access right and, yeah and it's open access yeah. which is really cool so yeah. nice varied bits and bobs that you can go and read completely free well they're just fun little they honestly say can be viewed as just fun little notes on their weird behaviors or most of the time they seem weird behaviors are certainly interesting yeah and this one is very cool um essentially these malagasy day geckos were just hanging around near people's houses, drinking honey and eating sugar. Yeah, I mean, it's basically they did. They took the opportunity, as they were probably studying something else in Madagascar, to just record what the day geckos around their presumably house or, or research station, wherever it was, what they're eating. They just did opportunistic observations, summarised a bunch of them, and did this little note. And they were just eating things like boiled sweets and honey and like milk <laughs> condensed, condensed milk, milk yeah. yeah which it's i think condensed milk fair play yeah they, these geckos have got a sweet tooth but they actually what i found interesting as well is that in all the time they were watching these geckos they only saw any of them attempt to eat an insect once and it failed well why bother you've got this delicious condensed milk that's high in sugar and delicious sitting there on the counter or i could put the effort in and chase a bug yeah oh, no brainer these geckos are like the terrible addicts of the yeah. gecko world. It, I couldn't find anything comparing their wild diet to this urban diet. Did you see anything? I didn't go looking. No. Although I did go looking because they mentioned in the paper geckos stealing pollen from bees. What? They, this is amazing. Stealing pollen for bees. What are they doing? Sneaking into a beehive and eating it. No. They steal it from the bees themselves. What, they lick the bees? <laughs> you know, the bees have their sort of little pouches on their back legs. Yeah. With pollen. The day gecko will come up along it and just eye it up, dodge round, bite the back, like, little pollen sack off the back of the bee, consume it. And there's a there's a video. In fact, they've got video evidence of this. Wow. <laughs> it's, I'll, I'll put the link in the uh, in the show notes. But the, the paper that describes it is... Uh, Clemenset or Bert et al. 2013 Kleptoparasitism in the endemic gecko Felsuma inexpectata Pollen theft from foraging honeybees on reunion 
Journal of Tropical Ecology. So not exactly the same species, not exactly the same place, but really shows Felsuma being not only loving the sweet things, are willing to go up against a bee and steal pollen from their legs, which is absolutely amazing. So we were talking about symbiosis earlier. This is definitely parasitism, and it's Absolutely. specifically, like you said, kleptoparasitism. So they're stealing. What a fantastic term! Yeah, I love that <laughs> kleptoparasitism. Yeah, steal, stealing parasite. You stealing parasite gecko? Yeah, because they're not. They're literally just robbing. They're them. doing nothing. Basically, they suggested the only reason they get away with it is for the bees. The cost of actively defending that is way a way greater cost than just getting some more pollen so the geckos are well just mugging these poor bees yeah the bees have to pay a gecko tax it's terrible poor bees i just you should check out the video it's absolutely fantastic yeah we'll we'll put a link to it in the uh show notes yeah yeah it is it's it is accessible it's in a weird file format for some reason it's in a, a flash video format which can be played by open access general video players. It's fine. It's just a bit of a... I had problems getting it to play in the browser. And basically by problems, I mean it didn't play in any of my browsers. But it did play once it you know, downloaded. And, and okay, cool. Sorry. And it's worth it. I mean, it's not it's not very long, but it's quite impressive to see this gecko sidle up to a bee, eye him up, and then go for the legs. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really awesome. Another reason they say that these geckos might be risking this even to begin with is the pollen stored on these bees say they add stuff to it to keep it keep it there to keep it stuck and one of the ideas might be that those materials the bees use to keep it there have some nutritional value to the gecko or some mineral value which they might not get from other sources you know we don't know that but it would be it would be a good reason for them bothering to chase a bee to get the pollen Wow, so it's kind of like reinforced milk. <laughs> Could be. Perhaps, yeah, maybe. Reinforced pollen. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> wow. First person to have seen that must have been, like, pretty shocked. Because well, you'd probably assume nice that the, the gecko was going to eat the bee, but no, they don't. They, like, it's almost like they have some kind of awareness that it's better to just eat the nibble the leg and the bee will come again. Yeah. Why risk it? Just get the goods. Cool. That's a really cool paper. I love. I love the the idea of these cheeky little geckos, you know, lo- loving it around the house and eating all the milk. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Well, it, it just looks like there's a lot of Felsuma species out there that are adaptable and love sugary things. Simple as that. And then there's people at their wits' end with the geckos drinking all their condensed milk, so they think, <laughs> "Let's get a bigger gecko, chuck him in the mix." <laughs> Being so noisy and messy. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Just quickly before we move on, I think we forgot to mention where that paper took place with the urbanised day geckos, and it was actually South Madagascar. South Madagascar, yeah. So they are another Madagascan species. So with that, should we move on to the fourth and final paper? Yes. Cool. Yeah, so our fourth paper's by Sanchez and Prosp, 2014. Distribution and habitat of the invasive giant day gecko, Felsuma grandis, in Reunion Island and Conservation Implication, published in Felsuma's very own journal called Felsuma. That's pretty cool. Day geckos are so popular, they have a journal dedicated to them. <laughs> um, so we've mentioned the giant day, day gecko as an invasive species before, and here they are on Reunion Island again, and here's a paper trying to work out 
their distribution and which sort of ecological niche they're fitting into and basically what impact they're going to have. Yeah, I mean, this particular gecko, this Felsuma grandis, the big old Madagascan giant day gecko. The biggest Felsuma? Am I correct in thinking that? I wouldn't contest that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I would imagine. With a a name like grandis, it better be. Yeah, you'd think it would be, but can't say 100%. Um, Yeah, now it's on Reunion Island causing chaos. Um, Reunion's a volcanic island. Um, It's part of the Mascarene Archipelago. Um, So it's one of three in that with Mauritius and Rodriguez in the Indian Ocean to the east of Madagascar. Mm. The Madagascan giant day gecko was first reported there in 1997. That's the first time it was spotted as an invasive species. I've got 1994. Have you? You've got 94? Yeah. It was published in 1997. Ah. It was recorded in 1994. Ah, ah. Well, there we go. There we go. A faux pas on my part. Yeah, sorry. So first published <laughs> in 1997, but first reported in, in 1994. Um, French law now prohibits the trading and introduction of this species on Reunion because Reunion is a French colony. I mean, talk about shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted, but at least there is some sort of uh, reaction from government. That's nice to see. So I was reading the sort of laws surrounding this, and it prohibits trading and introduction. And the wording is that if you find them, you can destroy them. Oh, God. <laughs> so I just had this image of like, it's not enough to kill it. You have to like <laughs> pound it into dust in order for it to be enough. Oh, uh, it's like destroy. So grim. Yeah. I have, you know, the... it's just that sort of terminology. <sighs> you know why they use it. It's to make sure there's no ambiguity, but it's a bit, a bit strong. <laughs> yeah. Destroyed that gecko. It's like, oh, God. Like, they're only small. Um, The reason for that is, as we discussed earlier, there's a potential for them to have a negative impact on endemic threatened geckos. Mm. Um, For example, as you mentioned earlier, Felsuma inexpectata. So here's a a fun fact. The the image for the artwork is a combination of those two species. They're the two I used to meld together to get the... (laughs) What, the Madagascar giant and the... Yeah, purely purely by luck. Wow. They're the two I, I got the shape and size from Grandis and then the coloration and uh, markings from uh, Inexpectata. So Inexpectata, the um, common name for it is the Reunion Island Ornate Day Gecko. Which, I mean, you see a picture of it and you can tell why it's called Ornate because there is quite a fantastic pattern with blues and oranges, white stripes, a darker stripe, mm. eye ring... It feels like they've got every aspect of a day gecko patterning all merged into one day gecko. <laughs> yeah, they do. And they also make good use of brown because some of them, they're like all lime green. And it's like, okay, it's just a, a, a lime green. <laughs> but when you've got brown to compare to your fluorescent green, mm. then... Your green looks greener and your yeah. browns look, well, yeah. browner. Now we cook on gas yeah. type deal. Nice little brown legs. Yeah, they're really cool looking. Um, they're probably one of my favourite ones, actually. They're, there's a reason these guys came out as opposed to others being used for the uh, the album artwork yeah the, the pattern on their backs almost looks like you know when the the tide recedes and you get those waveforms on the sand yes looks no, i do like know that. what you mean yeah it's really cool i'm pretty sure they have a proper name yeah they do i don't know what it is though I'm, my geography's failing me today <laughs> um but yeah the other the other species that they're worried about on reunion is felsuma bourbonica Named uh, after Bourbon Biscuits. <laughs> of course, the classic. They're chocolatey and delicious. Maybe they like Bourbon Biscuits and that's why they were called. 
in urban environments, <laughs> Bourbony goes after Bourbons. But they're another cool one. They're sort of really blue and a bit of red. They're actually crazy looking. Looking at a photo, they're quite they're quite striking. Much more red than uh, other species, I'd say. Yeah, a bit sort of blotchier and darker in coloration. Yeah. Still very dramatic and still those classic day gecko coloration. Yeah. Or colours. But the um, ornate is classified as critically endangered, the Reunion Island ornate day gecko. And Faustina bourbonica, otherwise known as the Reunion Island day gecko. So not, the, not the bourbon day gecko. Not the bourbon day gecko. The same without the ornate bit. They're endangered. Mm. So these these are two species that are both very much imperiled. That's obviously IUCN, International Union for Conservation of Nature. Yeah. Ratings again. Not massively surprising. Limited island populations tend to be quite restricted in range and quite specialist to these island environments. Therefore, vulnerable to changes and things like that. Yeah. But the um, Felsima grandis, the Madagascan giant... Um, they're arboreal and diurnal, as we've said. They also have a predilection for secondary habitats, which are disturbed by people, which is probably a lot of the reason that they are so successful. Well, this is something that you see in a lot of invasive species, is they are capable of living in places where the natives have been forced out. And that might be one of the reasons they are an invasive species, because they can get that initial foothold mm. in degraded or urban environments. And from then, they have a I suppose, a, a beachhead yeah. to push into the they rest like, of, of these areas. They build a base and mount an offensive. Yeah. It's crazy. Really interesting. Um, but they also are happy to live in primary rainforest, deciduous dry forest. Um, yeah, they're big, as we mentioned earlier. They're really, really big. Um, they're big and they're tough and they're ready to eat other geckos. And they're territorial. They, they're generalists in terms of diet. They eat arthropods, so, you know, chunky insects. Mm. Snails, other geckos... And even plant resources, fruits, seeds, nectar. Um, well, exactly. They're, they're a good demonstration of what we've been talking about through this entire episode, and that's the flexibility or plasticity of Felsuma as a genus. They seem to really, or at least some species, seem to be able to do really well in a good variety of habitats, taking advantage of a good variety of resources. Yeah. I read a paper by um, Dervin et al. 2013 entitled... Well, it's French, actually, so I won't read it. Um, <laughs> but essentially, it's all about what these geckos eat. And although I couldn't get much of the paper, being as it was in French, I did understand um, the word desiccé, which means dissect. And because these are an invasive species, they were able to destroy them and oh, look at their stomach yes, contents. Of course. And then you I... can get around a lot of ethical things when they're just being wiped out anyway. Yeah, yeah. so they, they destroyed um, 171 individuals. Um, and they basically found like what we just said. They eat pretty much anything. They even eat other geckos. Mm. So um, yeah, they're just ruthless predators, basically. Competition and direct predation, a distinct possibility for this invasive species on Reunion Island then. Yeah. Well, Reunion Island, the problem with these geckos is so big that the um, government actually has a plan specifically targeting the invasive mm. giant day gecko. I, I got a copy of it. Open the PDF. I was ready to have an interesting read. Bang! It's all in French. So mm, um, makes sense. Yeah, I don't know what it's all about, but there is a plan. And um, there was also I was disappointed again because I tried to read another paper, two papers by Sanchez and Gandar, which describe how they actually eradicated a local population of the giant day geckos, 
but I couldn't work out how they did it because mm. it was all in French. But I do get the impression that they used sort of trapping and manual catching. That was kind of the that was all I could glean. Usually, these eradication methods are a combination because different individuals will have a tendency to fall for different uh, techniques, and you'll need a combo to get those population levels right down to negligible. Yeah, it's quite an, quite an endeavour. It's probably a good sign that they're in French. I presume that's because the studies are being done in the service of policy making and making them accessible to the people who are actually be doing this eradication. Yeah. No, so although yeah. it's tough for us, it's probably spot on for uh, its application. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And actually, um, the paper that we're talking about, um, in their funding notes, they did say thank you to Direction de l'Environnement de l'Emanagement et du Lourmont de la Réunion, which I take to mean some kind of reunion government body. Um, yeah, it's gonna, yeah, it's going to be environmental department of you know, responsible for reunion islanders yeah it? so they're, they're getting funded they're funding the research yeah fair play this wasn't well, this one was in english but at the end of the day publishing whatever language you want well as long as it's you, there some... and accessible when it's going to make the impact that you yeah need it to and inform the policy you need it to they're doing conservation so it's all yeah. good um yeah it's, it's, it's heartening to see that they are making some inroads into this um invasion however the topic at hand is uh, discovering exactly where these invasive geckos are and what their preferred habitat is. Yes, it's an inventory, essentially. Yeah. So what they did was they um, directly observed the geckos, similar to the paper we discussed earlier. They actually used some citizen science in this as well, which is quite cool. Oh, they did everything they could, didn't they? They, they interviewed people, they gathered past reports, and they amalgamated everything they could that was ever being written about giant day gecko and reunion island and did their own work it was a real big coming together of everything you could possibly want to know really yeah it was it's it's, they were very thorough fair play to them um so what they did with that information was they noted down the gecko's microhabitat preference similar to what we discussed earlier you know the kind of plants they're on um what behavior they were doing so whether they were just sitting there whether they were sort of foraging whether they were you know, fighting amongst themselves, etc., mm. etc., um, and also whether or not they were adults. An adult was taken to be any gecko over ten centimeters. Um, yes, which is important for identifying. Well, if you've got juveniles around or adults, and the balance between the two and all that, it's all this information trying to get some idea of whether the population is a breeding population or whether it's just a <sighs> colonizing initial colonizing population that has no real potential to expand and naturalize which yeah. would be the term for them actively breeding and digging in yeah. in some ways they um i think they found 13 populations where there seemed to be breeding and 12 where there weren't breeding going on mm. 12 sort of more isolated geckos yeah um, they recorded these geckos from really varied environments, um, bamboo thickets, coconut stands, shrubland savanna, secondary growth dry thickets, so like <laughs> forests that have been cut and then regrown. They're these all things, over the place. Yeah, yeah, they love it. They're everywhere. As we said earlier, that you know they're generalists, so they're going to be successful. And it's important to note that those 13 populations, those 13 breeding populations, are separate populations. They were separated by at least a kilometre and there was a suggestion of no flow between them. Mm-hmm. So these are populations that have to be individually removed if you are to remove 
this incursion of invasive geckos. Yeah. Every single one has to be done. Yeah, and, and most of those populations, the, success, the successfully breeding populations, were actually in urban gardens. Yeah. Um, on walls and posts and things like that. They're just, you know, they really truly are living alongside people. And although they only found, they found 25 sort of chunks of geckos, um, but only 193 individuals overall, which kind of puts it in perspective. They're, they're all over the place, but there's still relatively few in number that they saw, at least. It might be early enough in the invasive or invasion stage that it, it is possible to remove them. The last thing you want is to try and get rid of them when they're fully established, they're everywhere, and they're breeding at such a rate that you can hardly, as horrible as it is, destroy them fast enough. Yeah. Yeah, credit to Reunion. They do seem to be trying to get their act together. You kind of alluded to this earlier that these geckos spread really, really easily. They are spread by people. There's a fantastic term they used in this called vehicle rafting, <laughs> vehicle rafting. which is great because <laughs> usually you think rafting is a sort of oceanic dispersal mechanism or method, but vehicle rafting is basically the geckos hitchhiking, but without anybody knowing. So they're you know, just hanging around on a bit of vehicle, vehicle goes down the other end of the island, hop off, hey, new habitat, yeah, let's, if, let's live in this garden now, off they go. And if that's a gravid female with warm eggs, you know... It could turn out to be male. Mm. That, that she gives, you know, lays eggs and they hatch into a male, and then you know you've got the potential for a, sp- a, a breeding population there already. Another word they use to describe that phenomenon of the geckos rafting on cars, they describe the all the processes that kind of fit under that umbrella as saltatory processes. Saltatory. Saltatory. I've not heard that term. So it's like a dispersal which is um, in a big leap rather than it being gradual. Oh, jump dispersal. Yeah. Yes. So okay. you'd normally think that they would spread incrementally. Each, you know, each successive generation might move a little way. But in the saltatory um, process, mm, that brings just like, pew, see you later, straight over. Yeah. That brings, I mean, that, that to me conjures images of all sorts of tree dispersals and things which occur on the backs of animals and stuff, which are these jump dispersal big events, which usually happen so fast, they couldn't be explained by any other method. Mm. And that makes a lot of sense for this rapid expansion of these geckos. Yeah, interesting that you mentioned plants, because um, actually one of the ways that these geckos are thought to have spread is that in plant nurseries, you know, people buy a plant or they... You know, they pull up a plant in order to put it in their garden or what have you. Mm. The gecko's eggs are stuck to that plant. Bang, you've got a new population. You know, you take a plant... You get some free geckos. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, um... I wonder yeah, if they... that's slightly connected to them being found in gardens more often, is their natural dispersal could be quite limited. Yeah. And it is almost entirely anthropogenic, or human-induced, pushing them to all these areas. That'd yeah. be interesting to see where the balance yeah. comes in. What's worrying, though is that on top of those human uh, spreading populations, there's two examples which the authors found that the initial start of population, which was spread by humans, has actually spread outwards into areas Uh, of secondary growth. See, there you go. That's the one that you've got to be really careful of. Yeah, and they think that's actually due to the natural range expansion under the normal circumstances. Yeah. Where they're like, this is the sweet life. We've got little competition here. We're bigger than everyone. Look at all these little geckos trying to push into my territory. Mm, They're now a meal. Well, I mean, on Mauritius, in one of the Buckland et al. papers that we were discussing earlier, they mentioned that they saw 89% declines in native geckos where these um, mm. where these giant Madagascan invaders were coming. So yeah. there was even local extinctions, actually, when, uh, when Old Grandis came to town. So 
That's quite dramatic. Local extinctions is often something that's quite hard to confirm and quite hard to tie exactly to an invasive species as opposed to other factors like habitat degradation. Usually these local extinctions happen synergetically, as in multiple factors coalescing and causing this population to die off. But if they're properly tying it to an invasive species, that's pretty dramatic, and I can understand why. I don't know that they were properly tying it, but certainly the geckos... The, well, if the t- even if the they timings... Were, they were implicated, yeah. Yeah, because it's such a short space of time, 94 to now, that probably goes a lot yeah. to explaining why the eradication... Yeah, but that was in Mauritius, Buckland was writing about. So they're yet to see the ones in Reunion occurring at the same time and in the same place with native species. Oh, okay. But, yeah, so... but on Mauritius, they have ousted the, the native yeah. geckos. So in principle, yeah. everything's set up. And they, wow, maybe Reunion has a chance. Yeah, maybe. They, you get, know, they're really get getting out, to it early. The government and seemingly scientists as well have had a fire lit underneath them by what's happened in Mauritius. So... Mm. You know, it, it seems like they they might have time to act. Um, definitely an area of research which is worth trying to get involved in if it's if you're interested in destroying helping. geckos. Yeah, if you, that's, see that's if the got, dark side of this is you you are saving species by working these things out, but you do have that sort hmm. of you are helping to justify the mass eradication of the Madagascan giant day gecko. Well, if you're a biologist with a terrible bloodlust. You can do good while doing bad. <laughs> yeah, there you go, exactly. <laughs> for, the, for the greater good, I suppose, would yeah. be the term, isn't it? But that's pretty much what they concluded, was that um, population control is required immediately. That's what yeah. it's going to take. Um, you know, they need to get people involved, local people, and they need to train people to distinguish between the different types of gecko, and they need to try and stop this. That's some, Yeah, that's something that comes up a lot. There are efforts in Australia to do with hey guess what we're not getting through an episode not mentioning the cane toad but they've got community they have um toad toad whacking groups that go out and you know just hunt toads and whack them mm. and that's in this effort to try and stay back but you've got to massive... avoid indiscriminate killing well exactly that's the trick is you don't want to go out and start whacking the to- the frogs which are being hurt by the cane toads competition and stuff because you're just making the problem worse mm. so there does need to be a level of oversight and also not bounty systems. That's a fun one that often goes wrong, is you put a bounty on, I don't know, a giant Daygecko's head. People end up breeding the Daygeckos, just whacking them on the head as they're, you know, born or whatever, and then flogging them to get the bounty, and they're just <laughs> they're just breeding more in their back, backyard. Oh my god, yeah. I've <laughs> that's something that's that. happened for, for bounties in a number of species, I think. Wow, wow. People are so crafty. Well, they are. I mean, it's a free revenue stream. Mm. Yeah, literally, all you've got to do is let some geckos loose in your back garden, collect them up. You know, they love they love boiled sweets, so just build a rudimentary just boiled sweet trap. Put out some condensed milk for them. Yeah. Feed them up, get them fat, knock them on the head, sell them to the scientists. Oh, blimey. <laughs> See, there's so many things to consider dealing with invasive species and eradications. It, it is really complicated. It's a minefield. And, yeah, a lot of ethics to consider. Mm. Well, there you have it. I think... Um... Distribution and habitat of the invasive giant day gecko. They're they're well distributed all over the island, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So far, not showing direct evidence, but they are poised to show direct evidence mm. of competition and predation and all the negative things we are seeing in Mauritius yeah. currently. At the moment, they're sort of in lots of little pockets, but yeah. they are, like you say, poised to get worse. So fingers crossed, reunion managed to avoid what happens in mm. Mauritius. Yes. So um. 
Yeah, I think that that rounds off our foray into Felsuma quite nicely, I think. Yeah, I think the real takeaway message is Felsuma is quite a flexible and dynamic species. Genus. Uh, genus, even, yeah. Found in rather wonderful island places, uh, different levels of threatened and under threat and different species of Felsuma are doing better in different areas, but a lot of them are flexible and a lot of them have neat little natural history tricks that they're making good use of in well urban environments, mangroves, or in a completely foreign environment if you're the Madagascan giant day gecko. Yeah, they're incredibly variable in their habits and also incredibly beautiful, colourful animals. So they are good looking. There's a lot to like about these Felsuma. Well, we've got our species of the bi week. We do. A break from Felsuma, just to vary it up a little bit. Still a gecko, but not Felsuma. But it is from Madagascar. Madagascar, so we're sticking to that theme at least. So the paper that we're talking about this week in Species of the Bi-Week is by Scherz, Daza, Koller, Vences and Glor. It's from 2017. It's brand, brand new. It's entitled Off the Scale, A New Species of Fish Scale Gecko with Exceptionally Large Scales. And that was published in Pier J. Ben mm. assures me it's not pronounced Pierge. Pierge. <laughs> <laughs> well, this species is called Gecko Lepis Megalepis, which means big gecko big scales big gecko big scales big problem (laughs) these guys aren't actually causing a big problem it's actually interesting you you pronounce it gecko gecko lepus i've always pronounced it gecko lepus why is that for absolutely no reason whatsoever but now hearing it lepus um although lepus is just scales part of me what we're talking about is a is a fish-tailed fish-scaled gecko that can shed its scales. And to me, when you say lepis, I think of leprosy and people losing limbs. Wow. Okay. And there's, there's some sort of poetic... No, I mean, that makes some sense. <laughs> that really does. There, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, you, you, like you say, these geckos, um, they can actually shed off their scales as a defence mechanism. So they're endemic to Madagascar. The entire genus Gecolepis is endemic to Madagascar. They're not found anywhere else on Earth. Um, and, wow. uh, Unless someone's nicked one. Well, yeah, there's probably a few some. There's probably a few roundabout, um, but as the name suggests, they're characterised by very large scales which overlap, and they do kind of look like fish scales, which is they're what... fantastic. It's a little bit fish scale and a little bit sort of chainmail like. Yeah, it's very armoured. Yeah, and these are when we t- these are big scales too. They take between seven and eight percent of the entire gecko's uh, snout to vent length. I mean, when you think of a normal gecko, they just have lots and lots and lots of granular Mm. kind of um, uniform-sized scales. like scales. Yeah, Yeah. whereas these guys have this, like, suit of armour. All overlapping. Yeah, yeah, all overlapping. And we mentioned earlier about tail autotomy, Mm. which is where... I mean, geckos do it, some snakes do it. Um, It's a bit more rudimentary in snakes, where geckos actually have like a fracture line in one of their vertebrae and it will pop off whereas mm. with snakes they kind of need outside pressure you have to be yanking the tail anyway <laughs> you have to put a bit more effort in. yeah yes. you, they, you know they give themselves a little twist and it snaps between vertebrae but these geckos take that kind of one step further and they they can actually shed off large portions of their, mm, their skin. a lot of scales and their tails too they can do both they can do both so they're yeah. pretty They've got a good combo of defensive. Basically, if you touch them, they just deconstruct themselves. Well, you say that. These are one of the only lizards, as in the genus um, Gecko Lepis, that I've ever caught 
in the wild myself. Oh, really? And the one I managed to catch didn't shed any scales. Fascinating. I, I got him in such a way that he didn't put the effort in to, to leave his scales. Maybe he kind of got a vibe from you that you were kind of a, kind a, of benevolent, a benevolent yeah. soul. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I just remember being really proud of catching this, this gecko that was renowned for ditching its scales. And thinking, yeah, I got him and I didn't cause him an undue amount of stress. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Science without impact, that's what we want to aim for. <laughs> so this gecko, they look, they're, they're quite big, aren't they? They've got a sort of a grey-brown head. Um, their body is grey-brown, but with like dark flecks, kind of mottled. Mm. And the scales themselves aren't a uniform colour. Being so big, the scales themselves actually have like all different colours on them. They also have some like dark flecks behind the eyes uh, and also below their mouth. Yeah, scales aren't even particularly regimented along the body. They're not as neatly distributed as you would think scales would be. Well, what I was reading, that that might be due to the fact that they're at different stages of being regrown. Yeah, they loss and they regrow, and so there's a bit of a mix and a mash, and they look a bit untidy and a bit scraggly. Yeah. Yeah. But because they're all mottled anyway, it's kind of hard to discern by looking at them how big each individual scale is. They kind of yeah. present this... It's quite a confusing animal to look at in some ways they've got this really blunt head as well their eyes are massive and then there's just a tiny little distance to their tip <laughs> of their nose this is like a really flat triangle shaped head um yeah it's, it's um if you were to think of a heavily bred type of dog with crushed a crushed face just think of that but put it in a gecko yeah yeah it's probably a little harsh, but they oh, no, are... I'm not saying that they're not bad looking. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, they're they are they're certainly unique looking, and um, on their bellies they're pretty much white, um, which I suppose is kind of an indicator that maybe they're a little bit arboreal. Well, these guys were found found arboreally or on rocks, but it seems to suggest that they are arboreal or tend tend towards arboreal behaviour. Active in both the rainy and dry season as well. And unlike our day geckos, these guys appear to be nocturnal and have that, that uh, elliptical elliptical eye. It's called countershading. Countershading, the lighter on the bottom and the darker yeah, on like, the top. Yeah, like a great white shark. Mm. Mm. Or a warplane. Or a warplane. Yeah. Less to do with evolution, though. Yeah, but it's just what comes to my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and as you were saying, you know, they're found on rocks. In trees uh, along the limestone singy cast of uh, northern Madagascar. This Those species. wonderful cast landscapes again. Yeah. This species was discovered in the Ankarana Reserve and the immediate vicinity. And the authors estimated, estimated that it only has a distribution of 182 kilometers squared. Yes, they suggest it is another example of a microendemic species, which is very closely related to this one small area and they've speciated in other small areas across Madagascar. And because of that, they're on the... Um, well, they're not actually on it. They propose that they be put on the IUCN red list as near-threatened. Yeah, that was an interesting point because they almost say... They say that it basically, with a bit more research, they're probably going to be classified as endangered and they only stay off saying they're endangered is because the threats which are likely to impact this species aren't confirmed. They're potential threats, so they don't classify fully for endangered. But I would have thought with a little bit more research and a bit more understanding, 
that uh, classification will be elevated. I think it was um, illegal sapphire mining was a big one. Timber extraction for charcoal and, you know, your classic mm. land clearance for agriculture. Yeah. Um, yeah, basically they are, like you said, micro-endemic to these dry forests and limestone casts, but those areas are shrinking rapidly, so could be that they're in trouble. Yeah, which is always a shame, mm. but is not particularly surprising either. No. So this was the first species of gecko lepis to be described in 75 years. Um, yes. And actually it's been 123 years since the last currently recognised species was described. So the one that was described 75 years ago was then later uh, altered or discredited. I don't know what it was. So I think this brings us up to six species of gecko lepis now. Judging, well, I'm going by the fact that Gloran Vences' 2007 Field Guide to Amphibians and Reptiles of Madagascar have five species. And I presume that just one has been found since then, if the 25 years and everything. Yeah, I mean... Maybe maybe some others have been found, but not yet described. Yeah, I think that's what they said in the yeah. um, paper, was that there was some which they think... There were some species which represented kind of operational taxonomic units, which weren't um, identified, that weren't sort of classified yet. So the... the uh, phylogenetic tree suggests there's more species than what has been described is what you're saying right? yes yeah. yeah in this paper they refer to 13 different ones um of which probably one two three four five six seven are yet to be described mm. so sorry six these guys i mean they've obviously been collected and tested it's just a matter of getting the uh description they might have even been this Oh no, this is 2017, so they haven't been because I was being they've been included, wouldn't they? No, but it's suffice to say that Gecolepis is a genus which is sort of coming coming out with more species, yeah, fairly regularly. There's a lot more still to learn, and then of course you've got it's all well and good, you know, pointing out that these species are different taxonomically, obviously genetically, morphologically, but then we don't know anything about the ecology of these animals whatsoever, so. We know they've got cool scales, but we don't really know what they're up to the whole time. So there's certainly a lot to learn. Yes, and that's the sort of stuff that is crucial for their conservation, especially if you have species in very restricted areas like we're seeing here. Because if you don't get on that and recognise that's an individual species, you might lose a population of what you think is a widespread um, gecko lepus species, and really you've just lost an entire species and a lot of diversity for that genus, which you don't want. No one wants to lose a species before you even know it exists. No, no one wants to lose a species. Full stop. No, no. Let's try and let's try and conserve them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you certainly don't want to be losing species that you can then only imagine and learn about from fossil records. Oh, yeah. Or museum specimens. Oh yeah. How ones... dire is that? Yeah. So we talked a lot about their um, evading capture by shedding the scales. There's actually only ever one recorded instance of them doing that. As in, in succeeding. Yeah, in front of researchers. They've only really got evidence of them coming off in human hands, aside from one note from herpetological notes, herpetology notes. Uh, that one's by Gardner and Jasper. Oh, Gardner and Jasper again. Yeah. See, doing good notes. How good, doing good. Yeah. Good, useful work out uh, Madagascar. Yeah, they did that in 2015. And one of them escaped predation by a velvet gecko, which is a Blacerdactylus species. They weren't sure which one. But um, this velvet gecko tried to eat... Uh, an unknown species of gecko lepis, but it's definitely in the genus. Well, yeah, if it lost its scales, it's in the genus. That's quite quite yeah. safe. But the uh, velvet gecko was just left with a mouthful of scales instead of a gecko. That's really impressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's some cool photos in that um, in that paper with just you can just see this velvet gecko with like a scale hanging off his lip, looking quite grumpy. Just like oh <laughs> man. <laughs> 
Oh, fantastic, fantastic new species. I yeah, mean, a fantastic defensive mechanism. That well, yeah, I'd urge everyone to f- to find the link in the um, description here and click on it. Go and have a look at a photo of this gecko because they really are like nothing else I've seen. Well, actually, the images they use in the off the scale paper, the, but the images they use of the gecko leopard are actually the same ones that have been uploaded to Wikipedia, presumably by one of the authors, I guess. But that. There's a there's a trio picture of a couple of side shots, one from slightly above, and then this this rather poor looking gecko who's had all the scales stripped off its back, um, looking quite fleshy and strange. Yeah, that photo makes me feel a bit sad. It's lo- it's lost like way more than you'd think would be good for it. Yeah, all the way up onto the head too. It's it's a lot of scales lost. Yeah, yeah. I mean probably seventy five percent of its dorsal scales. Yeah. Yeah, pretty pretty gross. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think that pretty much wraps up our species of the bi week: Gecholepis megalepis. Yep, big gecko, big scales. Another says it all. Yeah, really, really <laughs> great descriptive name. Um, yeah, I think that pretty much rounds off rounds off the episode, does it not? I think so. Yeah. So uh, hope gecko everyone. Done. Yeah, hope everyone's enjoyed our episode on Felsuma. Again, if we've made any mistakes or anything needs correcting, just shoot us an email, um, herphighlights at gmail.com. We also now have Facebook uh, at herphighlights. Um, just search Herpetological Highlights. We're also on Twitter. We're yet to tweet, but we're there. Um, we're, we're there and ready. We're set up. Yeah, yeah at, at, her, at herphighlights. Yeah. Full, full notes and full reference lists are available at herphighlights.podbean.com. I mean, we have shoved as much of the references as we can in the iTunes description, but they do have a character limit, which means you don't get all the papers. You probably get the main ones, but anything beyond that, and certainly the multimedia bit of watching a video of a gecko steal pollen from a bee, you'll need to probably go to uh, herphighlights.podbean.com to get a hold of that link. Cool. Yeah, I would advise strongly advise everyone to check that video out of the gecko just mugging the bee. This <laughs> is very funny. It really is very calculated as well. It's quite cool. Yeah, they know what they're doing. It wasn't accidental. No. Yeah, but uh, thanks very much for listening, and um, we'll be back in two weeks' time. Hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs>